in a six-week series on derailed. We're called derailed. And the first, it's really kind of in two, three-week series, if you don't know that. Maybe the other teachers haven't said that. The first three uh, sections are on the trouble part, shock, sorrow, and struggle. And then the next three, starting next week, are going to be kind of coming out the other side on surrender, sanctification, and service. This is the final week in this, in the front half. Um, and my picture that I'm going to be sharing with you today is all about how we get to these spots in our life. Like you, you have all this momentum, you're going forward, and then all of a sudden something happens and it just piles up the train cars. You know when, a, when the engine goes off, just the cars behind it, just boom, 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 boom. Uh, and those kinds of times of life happen to us all. Where we're just going along, we're humming along, and then bam, something stops us and we just hit the wall. But it's actually not a wall. It's actually this narrowing point is the picture I'm going to be trying to present. There's a narrowing point in your life where you're not sure how to get through this little spot and over to the other side. You think there's something over there, you, but you're not sure how to get through there. And a lot of times, let's be honest, a lot of times we're not even sure if we want to be over there. Things were going good. Things were, things were how we wanted them on this side. And now we get to this spot and we don't know how to get through, or if we even want to get through. What if on the other side it's more dangerous? What if on the other side something is expected of me that I don't want to give? What if on the other side there's just a loss and a vacancy of of someone that I loved? I don't want to be over there. I don't want to go over there. And And this is, this week, this idea of struggle. The struggle is the struggle to decide if I'm going to go through that narrows and get to the other side or not. And then the struggle to work my way through that narrows. But let's just be honest. We all the time come up to these places where we don't know if we want to go or not. We don't know if it's worth it. We don't know if God's on the other side and if he's good and if he's waiting for us. We don't know if we want to accept the responsibility over there. That's the picture I want you to be thinking of all day. I'm going along. There's this world over here. And I hit this narrow spot. And the train cars pile up. And now I'm sitting there and I have choices. I can choose to just sit there forever. This is it. I'm done. This is where I'm going to... I liked this space over here. I'm just going to stay where I was. I can choose to just back out and go somewhere else. Like, game over on this. I'm going to pursue something else. Or I can choose to push through and say, the direction I was going is where I should go. And there's something good on the other side and I'm going to trust it. You probably know Jacob and Esau. Jacob and Esau were twin brothers, um, and they were the they were the sons of Isaac, who was the son of Abraham. So we have Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, always referred to in the Bible. But Jacob is actually Jacob and Esau. He's a twin brother, and and Jacob and Esau, the twins. Uh, the Bible talks about how they were fighting in the womb. They were they were at each other from the beginning. That sounds super uncomfortable. I have lots of uh, pregnant women in my uh, office, and I just don't want to think about twins fighting in the womb. That's not good. So Jacob and Esau fighting in the womb, and they and they're born, and they turn out they're just very different people, very different people. Uh, Jacob uh, is is this indoor kid. He's mom's kid. You know, you know the commercial that's running right now. No one likes indoor kids. I mean, that's Jacob is the indoor kid, and Esau is the outdoor kid. He's dad's kid, and he's always out hunting and fishing and 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 doing big manly outdoor things, right? And he's and they just don't get along. Now, late in Isaac's life, their dad, you, you hear, we get this story 
where Jacob and his mom concoct this plan that sounds, as you read it on the face of it, just sounds impossible. Just, how in the world did this work? But anyway, they duct tape beaver skins onto his arms and he goes in there with this like beaver suit and he says, hey, dad, Isaac, I'm here to get the blessing. See, they were after stealing the blessing from Jacob, from Esau, who was born first. Jacob is stealing from Esau. Esau was born first. So, so they go in, uh, Jacob goes in with, covered with these beaver skins and says, Dad, I'm here to get the blessing. See, I'm your, I'm your favorite son, the outdoors guy, the big tough guy. Feel my arms. And Isaac feels his arms and, yeah, you are the one. So he gives him the blessing. It's a big deal in that culture. He steals the, the firstborn son blessing. And so he comes out of there and his brother says, I'm gonna kill you, but not in a way like brothers do, like, I'm gonna kill you. No, like, I'm going to kill you. Like, here's the sword. Here's the arrow. You are dead. And you got to think of him as the outdoor kid, the kid that you could be fooled by your dad by taping beaver skin. I mean, he must have been ugly for one, but he must have been <laughs> massive. I, I, you you got to get in your head this picture of this guy who's like, like I don't know, think of the, the toughest manly outdoor guy that you can think of. That's the guy that just said, I'm going to kill you. And so Jacob runs he flees. He goes to a whole another country and starts a whole another life. His brother is literally going to kill him and so he runs. Now, the Bible talks about how he lives in this other land and he, and he actually is very, very successful there and he gets lots and lots of uh, stuff. He gets lots of wives and lots of servants and lots of uh, livestock and he has kids and he becomes this kind of almost village unto himself. He becomes this uh, small, tiny start of a nation. And then God comes to him and says, Jacob, it's time to go back home. And Jacob's like, wait a second. Wait a second. No, 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 no. Look, look what's happening over here. Look how great everything's going. Look how my life is just being, being multiplied. And remember what's over there? Like the guy who wants to kill me. This big gorilla ape man guy with a sword who wants to kill me. I don't think so. I don't want to do that. But because God says it, he says, all right, I think I can do this. And he, you know, he stiffens his upper lip and he moves. He starts this whole, this whole thing, this whole bunch of flocks and servants and, and kids and all. This is a huge thing that they start walking through town, walking through the wilderness, getting back home. But as he goes, he's getting closer and closer and he's like, Man, this is not cool. What's going to happen? What's over there? What's on the other side? God says go there, but I I don't think so. I don't don't see how this is going to work out. He just gets more and more nervous. And he finally reaches this spot where he's close enough that he's like, all right, we got to stop for a second. This is, I'm at the narrows. This is just not happening, right? And the Bible says that he prays. Then Jacob prayed, oh God. Oh, God of my father, Abraham, God of my father, Isaac, Lord, who said to me, go back to your country and to your relatives. This is a prayer that's like a prayer, the the kind of prayer that you do where you're telling God something and you're asking God something at the same time, right? He's saying, God of my father, God, who said to me, go. That's a question. It doesn't sound like it, but it is. You said to go, right? I mean, this is really you, right? I am supposed to go through this narrow spot, right? God who said, go to the, are you there? Are you listening? And then he tells God in this prayer, I am so scared. I am so afraid of my brother. My brother is big and burly and going to kill me. 
That's what it says in the prayer. And then he says, but but you have said to me, I will surely make you a great nation and I'll make you prosper and I'll make your descendants like the sea. We've got to live in order to be like the sea. I mean, please don't let us die. He's asking, he's begging and he's scared. He's at the narrows and he doesn't know if the other side is good or not. He doesn't know if he wants to be there or not. He's thinking to himself, okay, I could, maybe I'm just close enough. Maybe we'll just live here. Or maybe I could, I'll just run away. We'll just go back home. Or maybe I can get through this, but I don't see how. That's the spot he's in. And then we get this, we get this idea that Jacob then does some smart things militarily. So he splits his uh, whole group of people up and livestock up and he splits them into two camps. He says, this way we can't all die, right? Some of us have got to live. When Esau comes and kills us, he'll only kill one or the other side and some of us will live. The other thing he does that's kind of smart is he, he gives his brother a present. I know, I'll butter him up. Big old oaf as he is, he can still take presents. And so here's his present. 200 female goats, 20 male goats, 200 ewes, 20 rams, 30 female camels with their young. That always doesn't count otherwise. 40 cows, 10 bulls, 20 female donkeys, 10 male donkeys. That is quite a gift, right? You're like, well, where do I put that? Thanks a lot. I mean, how do you wrap it too? I have no idea. So he sends his brother this gift. He, see how scared he is? He's terrified. And now we get to this very interesting, this is where I'm heading. We get to this very interesting little tiny story at the end of this. So Jacob was left alone. Big powerful words, aren't they? So Jacob was left alone. He was left alone to his thoughts, to his struggle, to his wrestling. And a man wrestled with him till daybreak. Hey, Bible, could you be more literal? I don't know. I don't get what you're trying to say to me. He wrestled with a man till daybreak. And when the man saw that he could not overpower him, he touched the socket of Jacob's hip so that his hip was wrenched and he wrestled with the man. And then the man said, let me go for it's daybreak. But Jacob replied, I will not let you go unless you bless me. Then the man asked, what's your name? Jacob, he answered. And the man said, your name will no longer be Jacob, but Israel, because you have struggled with God and humans and have overcome. So we get this very uh, obvious story of Jacob wrestling with a man, man sent by God, a man who represents God. Jacob is wrestling with God. What's he wrestling about? Exactly what we said. Am I going to go forward? I'm terrified. I, I don't know if God is really sending me or not. Am I going to behave? Am I going to listen to God and do what I'm supposed to do? Or am I going to go back home? I'm wrestling with God quite literally. But then the end of the story fascinates me because it says, the man says, your name is no longer Jacob, but Israel. You know what Israel means? Literally struggles with God. Or wrestles with God. Anytime you see L in a word, that L is God. Israel struggles with God. Guys, this is amazing. This Israel is the Israel we know. Israel, the, the, the people of God, the nation of God, the, the nation who eventually became God's people. God's descendants, which were like the sands on the sea. This is Israel. This is not just some strange thing. This is, the, this is the beginning of this nation. And the beginning of this nation, who is of God, is called what? Struggles with God. That's amazing. The foundation of who we are. You and I come from this. The foundation of who we are is struggles with God. I tell you, if you were to make a nation, if I were to make a nation, and we were going to name it, 
We wouldn't pick this name. If I was God, which I am super not, and I was going to make a nation, what would I call it? Stable, super happy people. The guys who know the truth and never question it and just live in it and it's all awesome. I mean, that's, I would come up with some name like, it would be a very long name, but I'd come up with some name like that. Or like Jesus and Peter, the rock. You know, like stable and awesome. That's not what God does. God says, struggles with God. That's who you are. Now, you guys, we have talked all kinds of times about it's okay to, to question God. It's okay to ask questions. It's okay to... But it's not just okay. It is the foundation of who we are. The nation of Israel. The nation of struggles with God. Are you getting this? This, is, this should be who you are. And this is the thing. It's not who we are. Because when we struggle with God... We're just constantly feeling guilty about it. We're just constantly like, is this okay? Is this okay? I'm not supposed to do this, am I? I, It should be stable. I should be like whole. I should be just sitting on a plateau. I don't think I should be struggling. This isn't right. Is my lug going to accept me? Is my church going to accept me? Is my spouse going to accept me if I struggle? Well, yes, because the nation is struggles with God. You should expect that. Struggles with God is exactly what it's about. So now, with you, when you get to these spots, what are you going to do? Are you going to engage in the struggle? Or are you going to avoid it and think, I'm not supposed to be here. This is not supposed to be what I do. Engage in the struggle. Go through the narrows. Get to the other side. When we were at in Easter, um, uh, Dave was talking And he had a point that just really hit me. And I want to bring it back to you. He was talking about this verse in in John. And it's always been my favorite Easter verse. And and don't think ill of me when I tell you why it's my favorite Easter verse. It's because it's the funniest verse in the Bible. It's hilarious. And, And so he brings this up and I'm ready to laugh. I'm like, oh, I love Easter because I laugh at this verse every time. But then he turned it on me and I saw something I had never seen before. But let's get to the humor first. This is in John chapter 20, and this is Easter. This is when Jesus raises from the dead, right? And John's telling us the story about it. And here's what he decides that is the most important fact that you should know about Easter is that I, John, am the fastest runner of all the runners in Jesus' disciples. What? You got to remember, these guys are like 16, 17 years old. I mean, John's older when he's writing this, but when he's living it, he's a teenager. He's a silly kid. And he decides to tell us, here it is in John 20. So Peter and the, they just learned that maybe Jesus is alive. So Peter and the other disciples, another peculiarity about John is he never calls himself John or me. He says weird things like this one, the other disciple in this case. So Peter and the other disciples started for the tomb. Both were running. And let me tell you, they were both running as hard as they could. If Peter starts telling you he wasn't running hard, don't believe him because both were running. It was on. What? Both were running, but the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. Chikang! Right? John, you are so funny. You are so crazy. It is, it's silly. He bent over and looked at the strips of linen lying there, but did not go in. And then, and then, Simon Peter came along behind him, way behind. Like, I bet I was, I bet I was a minute, two minutes ahead. Something like that. Probably. So Peter came along behind him and went straight into the tomb. I just, this is always just, I just love Easter for this verse. But here's what I learned this year. 
See, you never stop learning. Here's what I learned this year. John's telling us this, not because he's the fastest runner that ever lived, which he is, but because he didn't go into the tomb. Let's look at it again. John's, John's telling us this because he's embarrassed, not because he's proud. I am such a fast runner, which is true, but when I got there, I didn't go in. Peter, slow poke as he is, goes straight in. Look at this. Both were running, but the other disciple outran Peter, ha ha ha, and reached the tomb first. He bent over and looked at the strips of linen lying there, but did not go in. Like John's like thinking this through, like why didn't I go in? What's wrong with me? I mean, you know what it is, is I was so scared. I was so scared of what was going to be inside there. I didn't know what to expect. Because Jesus was everything to us. He told us that he was going to change the whole world. He told us that he was going to bring this whole new kingdom. And then they killed him and he was gone. And now we heard this rumor that he was alive again. But I don't know. I mean, and what if it's not? I mean, what if I go in there and he's just laying there? Then what? I mean, it's all ruined. It's all wrong. He gets to this narrow point. I mean, like this little like tombs entrance point. He gets to this narrow point and he doesn't go in. And now he's writing about it years later saying, I didn't go in. I didn't do it. I couldn't, I couldn't take it. I couldn't, I couldn't push myself in. I didn't go in. And then Simon Peter came along and he went straight into the tomb. That's just like Peter, isn't it? And Peter's just like that. He's just so like giddy up and go. He's just so eager. But John's, I think John's saying, I wish I was like that. I wish I was the kind of guy who would go in and ask the question. So it makes us ask the question, like, who are, what kind are we? When we get to these points, when the tomb looks black, when the door is unknown, when we don't know how to, what's on the other side, when we don't know what's on the inside, John's saying, be more like Peter in this case. Go on in. Investigate. Find out what the truth is. Now, here's, a, for me, the next transition. Well, in, in the book of Galatians, Paul has, a, has, has a, this idea of running the race. He, he constantly is talking about running. And in, and in Galatians, he says, who cut in on you and stopped you from running? Same kind of question, right? You're doing just fine. You're running along. Who cut in on you and stopped you from running? And a lot of times, a lot of times, for you and for me, we stop running when we're not sure about what's in the future. We stop running when we're scared that we're going to fall in a hole. We stop running when, we're, when we think maybe the other side's going to be rougher than it should be. I was running on the flats and I saw a mountain in front of me. Okay, I'm done. <laughs> who cut in on it? Who stopped you from running? I'll tell you who cuts in on me and stops me from running. And so now this next little section is kind of for me, and I hope you follow along with it. But what cuts in on me and stops me from running oftentimes is thoughts, thinking, things that I think about that I'm not sure if this new thought, if this new thing I'm learning from this person who I'm reading fits in with the old things that I've learned, the old things I'm learned, uh, that I've read. And sometimes I'm like, wait a second, if I, if I have to turn that truth around and look at it from another side, I'm not sure if I can do that. I'm not sure if it's safe. And so I start asking these questions like, is this, is this acceptable? Is this okay to ask? And so 
for people who are like that. And, and especially for high schoolers and college students who get to these points all the time. College seems to be like the place where you're going to run up against this. People are going to be telling you ideas that are, wait a second, that's not what I thought was going on. Right? When you get to college and your humanities teacher says, hey, I know you love all those Bible stories, but guess what? They're not yours. They come from all over the world, from all kinds of different times and places. You know that story of the flood? You're like, you don't own that. Everybody owns that. That's, that's all over the place. And you're like, Wait a second. And when you get to your science classes in biology and they're like starting to tell you things that you're like, wait, what? What? And when you get to your uh, ethics class and your ethics teacher is saying, hey, guess what? You know, you were told that the only way that you can have truth and, and goodness is if there's some standard by which you can set it against and that standard being God. Well, guess what? There doesn't need to be that standard. I mean, we, there's all kinds of other ways to make standards. You don't have to have that. And you're like, yeah, what? Right? And when your, and when your classmates are saying, hey, you know all those morals that your parents taught you? They're arbitrary. They're just what your parents taught you. They got them from their grandparents. And wait. So you get to these points and you're just like, wait, what? Wait, what? And you, and here's the temptation in college. Either just sit where you were. I'm just going to stay believing what I was believing before. Okay. Just don't bug me. Or run, go somewhere else and say, okay, (laughs) you're right. All that stuff I was, that's all dumb. And here's what I'm challenging you to do. Go through. Go in. Ask the questions. Struggle with God. That's exactly who you're supposed to be. You're not supposed to be a person who just accepts it or runs. You're supposed to be a person who struggles, who asks, who goes in. It's tough. I'm telling you. I get to these points all the time where I'm just, I'm just, I just don't know if it's right on the other side or not. So this is, I'm going to quickly run through this little uh, section here. Paul is talking about this situation that's happening where he was in Corinth and he taught people and then he left and then another guy comes in behind him and teaches people. And, and uh, that other guy's name is Apollos. If you're looking in your Bibles, this is Corinthians chapter 3. Um, he, uh, Apollos comes in and teaches and then the people, what do they do? They start saying, he's right. And no, he's right. No, he's right. And they start dividing the truth up between these three different teachers. And they say, this guy has the truth. And so if you hear it from this guy, it's not true because this guy has the truth. Wait, I listen to this guy. This guy has the truth. So this guy can't have the truth because this guy has the truth. And Paul's like, oh my word, stop it. Stop it. If they have the truth, it's true. This is the message he starts to give him. If they have the truth, if they're saying the truth, it's true. Thomas Aquinas in the 1200s said something very similar. If, if there is truth, if you hear truth, it doesn't matter the source. If it's true, it came from the Spirit. What? Well, yeah. If it's true, then it's true. And God isn't scared of it if it's true. So Paul starts giving them this permission to, to just like listen to all three of these teachers. And if they have truth, they have truth and it's true. If they say something that's not true, then they are also not right. Right? But then he goes even weirder. You're like, I guess so. <laughs> I love it. <laughs> P.S. My own son last week said, that section there, I had no idea what you were talking about. So I will be done with this section soon and we'll get back. But this is what thrills me. This is what invites me in. This is what invites me into the tunnel. And that's why I'm telling you this. Because I, I know I'm not supposed to be afraid of the truth. That's what I'm trying to tell you. I'm not supposed to be afraid of the truth. I'm supposed to ask for it and seek it out and struggle with it. 
So here's what Paul says at the end of this little section where he's talking about all this, where you got truth from. All things are yours. All things are yours. All truth is yours. Whether from Paul or from Apollos or from Cephas, which is Peter, the world or life or death or the present or the future, all are yours. And you are in Christ and Christ is in God. This is amazing. And here's why it's amazing. It's amazing because when he starts, he's talking about this one thing about teachers. And then it seems like he turns this super sharp corner and says something completely different. If you can put up the slide where the Greek words are, it's like yellow type. And I, and I don't expect you to learn Greek because I don't know Greek. But you got to see this in the Greek because it's so poetic. This is, I didn't take outwards. This is all the words that are in this verse. Ete Paulo, whether it's from Paul. Ete Apollos, whether it's from Apollos. Ete Caiaphas, whether it's from Peter. Now check it out. Ete the cosmos. What? <laughs> I think you're talking about something different now than you were before, right? Ete the cosmos. Whole. So wait, so you said, if the truth comes from the cosmos, if the truth comes from things that were created, I'm supposed to listen to it and learn from it and think about the truth in it? Yeah, you are. Yeah, you are. You are without excuse because from the beginning of the time, the created things screamed about God. Yeah, you are. If the truth came from there, learn it. It's true. Et the cosmos, et zoe, whether it came from life. What? If it came from life, like if it came from me living, if it came from me interacting with people and understanding things, it's, yeah, yeah, if it's true, it's true. I remember back in the history of Orchard Hill, there was a time where we started using actual, uh, like, secular songs in our youth ministry, pop songs, and people were like, right, no, don't do that, secularist devils, and, and one of the points we were making is, okay, right, but if it's true... If the words they're saying are true, and they're about real things, why are you so scared of true? Well, there is some reason. There's also non-true in the same song, right? Right. You are supposed to be a parser. You are supposed to be a person who can take in and say, that's true, that's not true. And you're supposed to be able, a person who can do that from lots of different sources. Paul quotes Quote, secular philosophers in the Bible. What? No, he does. Paul quotes secular philosophers in the Bible. What does that mean? Paul's reading them. He's understanding them. He's looking for the truth in them. And sometimes he's saying, hey, what that guy said, that's true. Whoa. That's so crazy. Okay. Ete thantos, whether it came from death. Ete estami, whether it came from the present or the future. I have no idea how that one worked for Paul. He got truth from the future somehow. I haven't gotten that one yet. But you see how beautiful that verse is? It doesn't matter where it comes from. If it's true, it's yours. Okay. Your struggle is not going to be necessarily with that. Your narrow point isn't going to be with, wait, 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 wait. Can I, can I keep reading about this? Can I keep understanding this? But your questions that are there are going to be the same as my questions. Is it safe on the other side? Is God in this? Is God the one putting me here? Is God the one that brought me to this narrow spot? Do I even want to take the time and effort to do this and go through here? And my answer to you is absolutely. That's exactly what you're supposed to be doing. So let's, let's look at this. Back to Jacob where we started. Jacob gets to this narrow point. He prays to the God of Isaac, the God of Abraham. 
Are you really here? Are you really telling me to do this? Now in the story, he goes forward. He pushes through the narrow spot. And he meets his brother. And his brother greets him with open arms. He says, the present was stupid and out of control. And I didn't know where to put it. But other than that, you're good here. And then Jacob, we, we see at the end of the of, of this section, says this. After Jacob came from Padamaram, he arrived safely at the city of Shechem in Canaan. And he camped within the side of the city. And for a hundred pieces of silver, he bought from the sons of Hamer, the father of Shechem, the plot of ground where his, he pitched his tent. And this is where, this is the money. And there he set up an altar and he called it El Elohe Israel. Remember I told you, I taught you a tiny little bit of Hebrew earlier. If it has El, it's God. God, God powerful, struggles with God. <laughs> That's what he called this. This is a really strange thing to call your temple. What, it, what does it mean? The mighty God of Israel. Why am I telling you? Why is this so important? Because before he got to the narrows, he prays, God of my father, God of my grandfather. After he gets through the narrows, my mighty God. These narrow spots also refine you and bring you to God. My mighty God, the mighty God of Israel. So I'm going to encourage you. I want to pray, I want to pray with you that when you get to these narrow spots, when you're not sure if God's on the other side, Go through, push in. Struggles with God is your name. And on the other side, the mighty God of Israel. Or, as I was thinking about it the other day, if we don't struggle, if we don't struggle, then the, then God is it, can't be mighty. He's the mighty God of those who struggle with God. He's not the mighty God of those who just sit and soak in the truth. The mighty God of those who struggle with God. So do it. Go in. I'm going to pray. Heavenly Father. So many times we buy this idea that we're supposed to coast. That things are supposed to be easy. That it's supposed to be great. So many times we buy this idea that that, that once we're 12, we've learned everything we need to know. Struggles with God. Struggles with God. Our whole lives, you expect us to struggle. You expect us to work. You expect us to push through. And on the other side is beautiful, beautiful land. The mighty God of those who struggle. So I pray, I pray that we are become people who are willing to struggle, who are willing to push through, who are willing to do the work. And then get to the other side where you are, where you are, where you are waiting for us. Now let us worship you in song. Amen.